five years and was the director of the criminal justice program for three of those years. And then when the school went under, I went to private security and I'm now a security specialist for All right, everybody, you might uh, wonder why I'm looking like I'm going to pull you over and give you a speeding ticket. There's a simple reason for that, because today I have a very special friend, Gaylord. He served for 26 and a half years as a California Highway Patrol, retired. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have a lot of stories today, ladies and gentlemen, a very special treat. How are you doing today, G? I'm doing great. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to be on the show. It's, it's all my pleasure. Everyone is definitely going to be interested to hear what you have to say. Um, but I would like to apologize. I'm going to go ahead and take these off. It's very hot in here, and I'm not going to give anyone a ticket. So uh, <laughs> I won't either. I appreciate that. How was the drive over here? Well, today was one of them rainy days, and so fortunately uh, the traffic wasn't heavy. So got here safe and sound. That's very good to hear. People always drive nuts in the rain, especially. Yeah, well, that's one of those occupational things when I was in the Highway Patrol, that uh, people tended to drive the same as though it were dry, and then when they come to braking, they're slip-sliding away, and unfortunately, especially in the first rains, uh, lots of crashes, and back in the day when you're working, you, you don't even patrol the right tickets. You patrol... Or you park and wait for the crashes to happen, then respond to the crashes so you can do your investigations and clear the roadways. Okay, so you would say there is a higher percentage of traffic accidents during the rain? The yeah, season. yeah. unfortunately, especially in the first rains, um, especially if it's like um, during the summers when there's no, no rain at all, and there's a lot of oil that ends up uh, laying out on the roadways and stuff like that, well, ultimately what happens is that when the first rains come, it brings up the oil to the surface of the roadway and so mix the oil and the water when people come driving along and then have to hit their brakes. Now they're on a little more slicker surface and sadly they crash. No, that makes complete sense and that's something you'd have to do with uh, driving the wet roads. Um, I want to I start before we get too far into the occupation. Sure. Uh, your name Gaylord is very unique. Uh, you are the very first person I've ever actually met. Usually, when people think of that name, they think of Meet the Fockers, right? Yes, that's the uh, generationally my my generation. Whenever they heard the name Gaylord, they thought of a baseball player who was uh, played both for the San Francisco Giants and a host of other teams, and his name was Gaylord Perry. And so, in my time growing up, it was, oh, are you Gaylord Perry? Do you pitch for the Giants or do you pitch for whoever? So, yeah, and then current generation, I have to mention the Fockers before they get the name Gaylord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could imagine a lot of kids these days aren't too privy to uh... <laughs> Back in the day, yeah. But yeah. to be honest with you, my name is actually a derivative of my Chinese name. Okay, please explain. And you'll love this one. My father, he had all of our names in Chinese, uh, made my brothers and sister direct translations of their ch Chinese name into English names. And in Chinese tradition, your first half of your name is the same, and it, it demarks your generation. So uh, uh, so my, my cousins, my same, same generation, all have the same first half of their name in their Chinese name. So my oldest brother is Galen. Then my sister, Galing. Then my brother, Gaiman. And then me, Gaylord. Now, my Chinese name is actually Gay Ming. 
And so they didn't think Gay Ming would be a great name for a boy. So what they did was my middle name is Ming, so I'm Gaylord Ming G. So there you got it. I got all of us have our Chinese names with the exception of me uh, as that as that get happy family. And, and you're the Lord of them, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, my parents' names, Thomas and Gladys. Really? <laughs> People, that, that was their English names. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, right? my brothers and sisters were first generation born in this country, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so that's why I was kind of thrown off as to like, well, okay, your parents' name was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting. Well, what was that like growing up as the first uh, Well, you know what? My brothers and sister were, were born in San Francisco. And so, you know, they, they grew up near near the San Francisco Chinatown. So they, they were a little more, you know, used to seeing a lot of uh, Chinese in, in the neighborhood and stuff like that. But my father, he'd gotten his law degree from uh, uh, through the GI Bill because he actually served during World War II, and later on in the fifties, he was he put in for a, a job and he ended up becoming an administrative law judge for the state of Nevada, and so we moved uh, or my family moved to Nevada, and uh, later on, I was born in nineteen sixty in in Nevada, so my world was even more unusual because i'm that asian that little chinese kid growing up in a well quite frankly a very white world and uh my father told me that at that time there were probably maybe a hundred or so families of chinese descent in las vegas in the 1960s interesting so it's safe to say there's probably a lot of racial tension at that time well actually you know, my father was in a well-to-do position. He was a judge, so <laughs> so and so people, so people who knew him, you know, we had a great deal of respect for who he was and what he did, and he he, he was unique for for a Chinese American who grew up speaking both English and Chinese very well, and so because of that, he didn't have you know your traditional accent that one might think of when you see an immigrant in this country. He, he you know, having served in the U.S. Uh, Army. Air Force, and then later, you know, becoming a judge, clearly his, his English was fine, and um, interest, his mother, my mother, his wife, really didn't speak much Chinese, or English, I should say, she, her, it was ex- almost exclusively Chinese, so I had to learn how to speak some Chinese, but I had to understand enough of it so that we can communicate with my mother. Yeah, we, I, you know, uh, as a little kid, my friends in our neighborhood and everything like that, they didn't look at me as different per se, uh, and I didn't encounter, um, you know, the, the, the heavy-duty racism that many people associate being one of the onlys. Some of the older kids, they picked on me, but that's typical of older kids anyway. They pick on, you know, the, the fifth graders pick on the second graders, that kind of thing, and that's kind of how, that was more of how I associated it, not so much because of my, my race. No, that that's that seems fair. I mean, older kids do unfortunately uh, seem to, uh, I guess, uh, pave the road for the younger kids. Yeah, right? exactly. I hope that the future holds for them. Yeah, <laughs> but just to just to let you know, my my family moved to California in 1968, so I'm eight years old, and mind you. I grew up in, in Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada, where there, I didn't see any other Chinese kids growing up. But when I moved to California, I lived in a, uh, in, in the Bay Area called, in a town called, or a city called El Cerrito. And that's next to Richmond and Berkeley. And El Cerrito, I get to there, and this is the first time I saw other Chinese and Asian kids. First time I ever saw black kids, 
you know, I'm used to white kids, but I never saw black kids or Asian kids. And so, hey, and a couple of Hispanic kids and wow, look at this, you know. And so that was my introduction to diversity moving to California. Okay, so you said 1968, correct? Yes. California, so that was uh, not too long after segregation was finally ended, right? Civil rights was in, you know, between 63 and 65. And then, so as a little kid, you know, we experienced some of that. My sister was going to Berkeley. And so she was uh, like, yeah, as a, as a college student in Berkeley. And this is when a lot of the racial tensions going on in San Francisco State University and UC Berkeley. And there are a lot of riots going on in UC Berkeley. Uh, same thing with San Francisco State. And so while I wasn't old enough to partake in any of that or be really truly aware of what was going on, you can kind of envision that growing up, you, you do see it in the news of the riots going on. And, and Berkeley was the flower child area of, 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 the, of the country, really. And so you had lots of riots going on. And what was really funny is our next door neighbor, he was a captain of the Berkeley Police Department. And he used to come in with like posters, look at this. And it was like a Jeep that had these screens that, that poured out uh, uh, tear gas. <laughs> and it would go up and down the block. And so he had a poster of it, look at this. And, you know, so we we're all about, this is kind of cool, look at this stuff. And so we got kind of a bird's eye view from, from our neighbor, what was going on out there. I mean, that transitions beautifully. I mean, is that something that inspired you to join the force? You know, that. Um, I've always been, my father has always been community oriented and growing up, you know, he said, you know, you always got to get back to the community. He was part of different, uh, like the Optimist Club and some of these other types of organizations. Uh, I remember as a little kid uh, going with him and he'd be, you know, making pancakes with all the other members of the group and, and, and making money so that they could put it towards giving underprivileged kids you know, toys and stuff like that on Christmas and stuff like that. So I kind of learned from an early age about giving back. I used to get mad because these kids were getting toys and I wasn't. <laughs> but, but, but I, you know, now as I got older, I understood the purpose for all that. And, and later on in life, I, I did, in fact, uh, do that kind of thing. And I specifically, I did that with the Highway Patrol as well. Yeah, his his actually was in what they call unemployment compensation. So his is more civil oh, in okay. in the area that he did uh, uh, legal work. But yes, just people knowing, hey, how's your father? How's the father? The judge kind of thing. <laughs> so that was kind of neat. Um, but. You know, our next door neighbor, yeah, he was a police captain. He was a very, very kind man. And I, I, we used to see his unmarked patrol car parked in front of the, uh, on the block and stuff like that. And you could see the radio inside the car and you all little kids, you know, oh, look at that. That's kind of cool. And, uh, and so I was also interested in military too. So with all the interest of military, because when you're in the kid back then, uh, some of the big shows were uh, in the 1960s was combat with Vic Morrow. And, and, and so I used to watch that, used to watch uh, the Rat Patrol. These are all 60s military shows. And then later Hogan's Heroes. Would, and so all these were military shows that I used to love to watch. And so I enjoyed the military aspect of, of uh, growing up, of how the military worked. So between the two, no, that, that's uh, definitely inspiring. So how old were you and what year was it when you joined the force? Well, um, kind of a difficult story. And I should say difficult, but typically in law enforcement, you can apply for the agency to test. And then there's a testing process for pretty much all law enforcement agencies. I only applied for one agency, and that was when I was in college. 
and I was a, a junior at, at San Francisco State. And while there, uh, uh, a recruiting vehicle, that a couple of officers were there. And I said, oh, look at that. And so a buddy of mine uh, said, hey, I'm going to apply. So, okay, well, I'll apply with you. And so we both applied. And I didn't see him at the written exam because there were like 400 people who showed up for the written exam. I went to a high school and took the written exam. And, and he didn't show up, but I did. And at that time, they used to place you one to 500 or however you did. And I placed like in the top 20. So I said, oh, I think I found my calling here. So I did well on the written test. And then they schedule you for the the um, oral interview. And the oral interview, they give you a score. And that's they combine that, that written score with the oral interview score. And that's how you get your composite score to when they're going to uh, start pack, doing your package to see if, they, if you're eligible. Um, and so that was in 1980, November, 1982, that I took the test, the first part of the test. And through that year of 83, I went through the various, uh, testing processes, physical exam, uh, physical abilities test, and they do a background check on you. And, and they do a the back then they didn't do a psychological in 1987, a couple of years after I joined, they started doing the psychological exam, but, uh, I did all those testing process and then I was made eligible by, by mid-1983, uh, and then I went into the academy in April of 1984. Okay. <clears throat> it's interesting. I was actually born in 1984, so I'm not, not, not trying <laughs> to put no, you on the spot No, no, no. It's all good. I was 23 when I graduated. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's just uh, it's just cool to see the different time gap. And like I said, mm-hmm. I have a whole generation out there that likes, you know, needs to hear about this stuff. Like, not everyone was raised or born in the 60s and 50s, yeah. you know. You have a lot of information like that that's very pivotal for people. Um, what, what was training like? Well, in... We're one of the few agencies at the Highway Patrol where you act, we actually have a physical academy, and you, it's a live-in academy. Most police agencies, sheriff's departments, you come in in the morning and they can do their morning PT or they can do their morning um, drill and all of that, and then they have their classes. And in that academy, they will also have PT, driving instruction, and lots of classes. Um, I think there's about... Uh, a minimum of like seven or eight hundred hours of training mandated by state of California, and then you can add another two to th- two to three hundred hours of agency specific training. So in the Highway Patrol, they had like another three hundred hours of training that we had to do uh, specific to the Highway Patrol. So in ours, we woke up at four thirty-five a.m. to go to morning PT. You go out there and you go on the calisthenics. First thing you're doing, you're doing sit-ups and push-ups and all kinds of other calisthenics. You don't think that 20 minutes of sit-ups and push-ups nonstop is very difficult until you do it. <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, and so that was like rude awakening. So, oh, my God, I was pretty active. I played high school football and ran track in high school. But this was, wow, very, very intense. And so, and you did this every morning. Then you went to the weight room. And right after the calisthenics, you did the weight room. And then you had to do a whole bunch of weight circuit. And then you ran over to the pull-up bar. And you had to do pull-ups. And then after that, then you ran. So anywhere from a mile and a half to, when we maxed out, we maxed out at seven miles. So, I mean, we, you get physically fit. I went in at 168 pounds. I graduated at 144 pounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was in good shape compared to a lot of other folks. I was in the top 20% of my class. And when I finished, I was in the top 10% of my class physically. But holy cow, I was skinny. <laughs> it, it's 
actually cool that you mentioned that because uh, my next question was actually going to be, uh, how was the first days and weeks of the of the training? Uh, you know, did you still feel like it was your calling? Because obviously it, you did well on the test. I'll tell you what. Most people, when they when they think of the military, now I like to reference Full Metal Jacket. You ever seen the movie Full Metal Jacket? Yeah. Remember in the very beginning, the, the drill instructor, Arlie Ermey, he's yelling and screaming at everybody now without the cussing and all that stuff, but with, with, with pointed uh, reference to you know, what they see as some weaknesses in your in, in initial appearance. Boy, they, they jump in your face and they find out, you know, and they're breaking you down in essence. And so that first week, it's it's really, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. You you, you sit up, right, even when there's nobody around because you're afraid someone's going to walk in and start jumping on you and say, oh, what are you doing? Why are you sitting like that? You know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, that first couple of weeks, you know, they, they really kind of break you down. And for that purpose, they break you down to build you back up. And that was you know, that I, you know, 10 years later, I worked at the academy. So I had a chance to be on the other side of it. And funny thing, we used to watch Full Metal Jacket before, the night before the incoming uh, cadets came in just to get ourselves into that, you know, that fervor to break these kids down. <laughs> so. No, that is kind of inspiring, right? Because if you're put into situations that you normally wouldn't be in and don't think that you can overcome, once you overcome it, right, you kind of have that, that like spiritual knowledge and knowing yeah. how to pass this. One thing, that, another thing that people um, sometimes don't realize, and, and this is part of the reality of law enforcement training, is that they're designed to weed out those who, who might not you know, fit the mold of what people need to do and when I say weed out they're not looking at types as much as what's inside your heart and what's inside you know how you think because if if you quit in the academy the biggest fear is that's what you're going to do out in the road and if I'm out there and I call for backup and the guy coming says oh no I can't get involved in that one my life is now in grave danger because my backup isn't going to arrive so what a lot of the training is instilled upon you is that you've got to take care of each other. And sometimes it's in a harsh way, but that's that's typical of military-style training, paramilitary-style training. You know, they get used to getting yelled at. The other thing by getting yelled at a lot is that that's what you encounter out in the road. When you're working out in the field and people, you know, unfortunately, we're not always liked when we arrived at a, at a in an incident. And when you get a call and someone's cussing at you and swearing at you, so, whoa, you know, a lot of people aren't used to that. And so you have to be able to address those situations calmly and professionally. Sometimes you have to bump up above that person. Other times you have to you know, kind of put your hands up and say, hey, time out. I'll listen, I'll hear you out, but you do have to step back a little bit because if you're yelling and scream at me, you're not telling me anything. And so that kind of training on that is, is part of the, 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 the process in which they teach you to get be aware that your reaction to, to somebody, especially when they're yelling at you, is going to kind of dictate how they're going to continue to treat you. Okay, and I hate, I hate to derail this uh, train that's moving so smoothly, but I have to ask, have you ever been in a situation where you've called for backup and there was no... Oh, you know, sometimes it's just, it's it's routine. Sometimes it's routine that you, you call backup whenever, let's say, you're about to make an arrest and this person looks like they might, might fight. Before I even start the arrest process, I'll call for backup so I know at least it's on the way. And I've had a couple where where I, I call for backup as I'm about to make the arrest. And I won't say it went south, but certainly the person started to resist. 
Um, and so I was able to get, get get cuffs on the person, but I'm still kind of struggling with that person. So when the second officer arrives, you know, they can assist with, you know, seating the person in the vehicle and all of that. Uh, I've been fortunate that I've only had a few fights in the highway patrol and the two worst ones were women. Really? Yeah, and, and and part of it for me anyway was that I wasn't trying to be overtly physical with them. I was just trying to put them in control so they wouldn't hurt me or themselves or others around the area. So in, in most cases, I was able just to suit, subdue them, handcuff them, and then just calmly place them in the car. Were both of those just routine stops? Or? Yeah, in fact, both were uh, DUI arrests. Interesting. So that kind of goes hand in hand, right? Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) People who are under the influence of drugs and alcohol, they're not always who they normally are when they're they're sober. And so, you know, you put that in consideration. Law enforcement is, 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 is not fun when you think about how people are in general in our society. And sadly, a lot of folks have a lot of disdain for law enforcement. And I do blame law enforcement generally speaking, for how they approach things. Um, I've met a number of female officers who don't approach it the way the male officers do. And they're far more successful because they don't go in necessarily, I'm the biggest, baddest dude in the block, and I'm going, you, you are not going to overcome me. You know, They use a little bit more, okay, calm down. I'll t- listen to what you have to say, but you need to calm down. And it's a different kind of approach still pro- proactive, still trying to show I'm in control here. And if you want to, to address our situation here, you need to communicate with me, not yell at me. And then we do have implements of self-defense on us from a baton to, uh, to chemical, you know, like mace or, or pepper spray. And uh, today's day, we have tasers and all these other things. And yes, we do have a gun, but... You know, in, in 26 and a half years, I never had to draw my gun to defend myself. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, but at the same time, I have had to draw it because our, our uh, procedures call that you, you draw your weapon and be at the ready position kind of thing. But I never had to draw it because I had to save myself. Fortunately, through good tactics and through, uh, you know, using your, your partner officers, you can kind of avoid a lot of that just by being in a good tactical situation, preventing that person from being able to do something because you're already prepared for them to try to do something. When they see that you're ready, they're less likely to try something. No, that makes sense. I, I do know that I, I assume there will be protocol for you guys to have the weapon drawn if maybe the windows are tinted too dark, you can't see who's inside, or perhaps you were chasing them, right? Yeah, and uh, we have what's called misdemeanor stops, felony stops, and each one dictates a certain procedure without going into detail on the procedures. Yes, uh, your weapon may be at the ready. Um, if you're doing some felony stops, your weapons may actually be pointed, uh, depending on circumstances. Um, in other cases, you, know, you, you may have to do a, a quick draw because the person you come up on has a weapon already at the ready. And so you, you have to react differently. I've had a couple of those, but fortunately, you know, they saw that I was actually the way I made the approach. They weren't aware that I was even coming up on them. I saw the weapon before they even saw, and I was able to draw down on them before they could even go for the weapon. Okay. Yeah, that, that's good. I'm, I'm happy that you're here to tell these stories because I've seen too many videos. And I'm sure the people at home have as well, um, where the officers have no chance. They just walk up to the car and get shot yeah. or, um, I should have queued some of these up, but I didn't know we'd get into these conversations. <laughs> but uh, there's the one where the gentleman, uh, the officer, 
rather, wouldn't call the other guy a gentleman. He gets out of the truck and he has a, he has like a two two three like AR or something like that. The police officer has a handgun, man, and he just it is it's, it's not it's not beautiful. So I'm glad that uh, that didn't happen to you, and uh, it's sad that it did happen to that yeah. gentleman. Um, what was what was the first days of duty and like how was that like just so you know the, the academy you know, when I went through it was 20 weeks now it's 26 weeks so it's another month and a half and part of what their training is they actually teach some Spanish because California being uh, uh, next bordering to Mexico we have a lot of Spanish speakers and so that's been incorporated in the uh, the academy training as well as some other training items so the officers coming out of academies now, you know, I thought I was pretty well prepared, but these guys are even more prepared. So I, 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 I give them props because they had to go through in another month and a half of training that I didn't have to go through. And they're pretty well trained. Now, having said that, uh, before I go into some of the other issues that you're talking about, one of the things that, that people need to realize is that the academy is a weeding out process. And it's not unusual to have an academy class lose 35, 40% of its, of its initial uh, cadets coming in. And that's, you know, across the board, any agency, you'll see a, a pretty significant percentage dropping out because they couldn't handle certain areas of, of the training. And sometimes the, the training agency will say, your driving isn't good enough, your shooting isn't good enough, you didn't meet minimum qualifications, so we can't let you continue on, and then they'll let you go. It doesn't mean that you, you're done, it means you can go back, go get some training outside of to, to develop your driving, develop your, your shooting. Yeah, some people aren't very good at report writing, and if you're not a good writer, or at least a good basic writer, um you're going to have a hard time in law enforcement. They never show that in the TV shows, but you write forever on some of these reports and big investigations. There are hundreds of pages for those big murder investigations and that kind of thing. So people don't realize that, but that's a lot of what we do also. Yeah, they never showed Eric Estrada doing the paperwork. No, chips. it looks cool to, to drive around on the bike and yeah, it looks yeah. cool to make the stops. looks cool to go into the action and pursuits and all that. It's not so cool sitting behind the desk or in today's world, sitting behind your, your laptop in the patrol car doing that report. You know, that, that takes time. <laughs> and let's not forget the cool glasses. Do you think that that might have a lot to do with the attitude? Because if I pulled somebody over and I know that they pulled over for me and I have these cool-ass glasses, man, <laughs> I just walk up and take them off like a, straight out of a movie. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. I know other agencies, they don't have a policy on it. The Highway Patrol policy forbids mirrored glasses. Highway Patrol does not allow mirrored glasses because they they know that it 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 infuriates the public. They'll allow regular sunglasses, darkened sunglasses. They will not allow mirrored glasses. You're looking at yourself, talking to the officer. <laughs> you, you, that's that's on you, right? But I mean, honesty goes a long way when I make a traffic stop. You know, I've stopped people for hi. I stopped you for speed. Can see your driver's license, registration, proof of insurance. Were you aware of how fast you're going? Now, if I stopped you and you were going 90, you said, oh, 70. You know, I, I, I kind of say I'm concerned on two on two levels. Number one, I think you're lying to me on, on your knowledge of your speed. Number two, if you're being truly honest, you think you're going 70 and you're actually going 90. I'm worried about your driving skills that you can't tell the difference. <laughs> hey, there's 
speedometer's broken. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on now. <laughs> Fix the ticket for the speedometer, yeah. Yeah, so, so well, you know what? You, you, you can take your car in to get the speedometer checked and get it recalibrated, and you can bring that to court to say if it's good or not, because we calibrate, we have our vehicle's calibration checked every couple of months. So we know ours is pretty accurate, uh, and we're required to bring proof of our calibration of our vehicle. What we typically did when we went to court on, on speed things is we had the month, uh, the, the, the one before and the one after so that we'd have two proofs of, uh, that the vehicle is still in good calibration and our speed, is, our, our speed estimate was accurate. Okay, that's good to kind of uh, weed out any mistakes. Or yep, this type of thing. exactly. Okay. That's interesting. Did you work for the same department the whole duration of your career? Yes, you I did. For? Nope, same I stayed. Twenty six years. Stayed in the same Ohio Patrol twenty six and a half years. I also uh, what once the nice or the beauty of the Ohio Patrol is that we have one hundred and twenty offices across the state of California, and like I worked in a few of them along the way so i didn't if i got tired of working my my first assignment was san francisco so i really got to go back home so to speak where that's where my family was at the time so i spent a couple of years in san francisco and then later i worked for our division office which is kind of of regional headquarters for the nine bay area counties and they were located in vallejo and so i worked there for a few years and then um, later i worked at our academy and worked there for a couple of years and then went to our field office in Solano County, Fairfield. And then I kind of bounced back and forth between Solano County because I also worked at the scale facilities where the truck stops are for uh, the commercial rigs and I also worked at headquarters. And so I had uh, a lot of different assignments and mine is relatively a small comparison to some officers who have worked a host of different offices during their careers because they could. And there are some officers I've known who they worked and stayed at that same office the entire time. That's a long time. Yeah, but see, the beauty of the Highway Patrol is that if I wanted to get out of get out of a, a field office because I wanted to get something different, I could. I could put in a transfer, and then whatever my seniority enabled me to get to, I could go to those to those commands. So I know some guys who um, their goal was to go to God's country. They wanted to work way up north. They like to hunt, they like to fish, and so they, you know, they, they bided their time when they got that assignment. They lived and stayed there and were, they, you know, in some of those counties, they're one of the highest paid people in there just because of um, that county and the, and the type of uh, population and the type of work that's available out there. So they lived a very good, happy, and uh, comfortable life and were able to uh, take care of the public. And of course, we all appreciate everyone's service for that. Um, I was looking up because I was trying to remember the years exactly. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, of the Zodiac Killer, because you mentioned that you worked in like the Vallejo yeah. area and stuff. The Zodiac stuff happened in the '60s, early '70s. It, it, yeah, in 1968, uh, says uh, he. Killed five, murdered five victims in the San Francisco Bay Area between December 1968 and October 1969. Let me tell you a little story about that one. Interestingly enough, over at what they call Crystal Springs, uh, over in, I think it's Crystal Springs, in the Vallejo area, it's kind of on the outskirts of Vallejo uh, towards Benicia, something did go down where one of our CHP officers was 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 patrolling and saw something something happen and so as he was driving out there he saw a vehicle you know trying to get away and so he didn't know why but he started to chase the vehicle and he was just far enough back that this vehicle made a turn and then there was a fork in the road and it was left or right 
and he wasn't sure which direction it went, so he turned right. Turned out to be the wrong one, the wrong direction, and so he, he lost track of that vehicle. Later on, they learned that that was one of the first Zodiac killings. Really? And so we often wondered, what if he had turned left? Yeah, wow. So that's, that's one of story, yeah. Right? So that's one of one of our officers way back when, who happened to be in that area, uh, patrolling when something went down, and unfortunately, just the wrong turn. It could have been it made a difference. Yeah, fifty-fifty, right? Yep. Yeah, that's that's wild. Um, did you? It's often that if a, a CHP officer would probably work with like someone from the sheriff's department or regular police officers in instances. Yes, um, specifically. Uh, the, we work closely a lot of times with the sheriff's departments. There's 58 counties in, in California, and each county has its own sheriff's department. And we have worked with a number, I've worked with a number of different sheriff's uh, uh, deputies during my career. And when I was in Solano County, I became great friends with a, several different uh, sheriff's department members. Um, and I used to do some community outreach work with the Solano County Sheriff's Department quite a bit. We, we were we were like, you know, we had a little posse of guys who like to go out and do things to help out the community and, and to, to educate the community and try to let them see us not as enforcement officers, but just as officers who you can ask questions of. And so our presence in these community events and at going to schools and doing those types of things really was good a good way for us to get out the message of safety, of of taking care of your community and resources that we can provide to the to the community and uh, it was very well received. Okay, yeah, I, I remember seeing a couple times um, on that show Cops that used to be. I mm-hmm. think it's not on the air anymore, but anyways, uh, the actually, it's coming back. Interesting. Yeah. Well, stay tuned. Yeah. Um, so we had the some of the police officers in some of the uh, more rough areas. They would hand out like police, uh, not police, but baseball cards. Yeah. And things like that to the I'll children. I'll have some. <laughs> yeah, really. So, <laughs> with that, with that being said, I seen the way that these kids light up because. It seems like there's not a lot of future for them, right? Um, being from an impoverished area, it seems like there's nothing but uh, drugs, guns, violence, all that stuff around you. So when you're thinking that this person might be the enemy, I think you could see the side, like the, the relief in the children's eyes. So like, oh, this police officer actually cares. He's really here to help us. Um, unfortunately, like we spoke about earlier, another police officer that he might encounter may not have that same attitude right um but it does it does enlighten people that not everyone is like that with with, with that being said is there a, a child or any moment that you did one of your events where you're like man I, I feel like i reached them i feel like i might have made a difference in their life for the positive you know i have a few of those please tell and me. and I'm, I'm, I'm it's kind of interesting that you bring that out because <clears throat> i've had a um an opportunity to work with different uh, in different communities and while I was assigned in San Francisco, uh, midway, a uh, couple, about three years into my assignment in San Francisco, uh, they needed a, they were put out for a position, for, uh, in-house position for a public affairs officer. Now they call them public information officers. But as the public affairs officer, you come inside and you're, you're now an admin officer. You work administration within the command of the office. And so my job was to, Go out and do the the visit the schools and do safety presentations. Go out to businesses and and community groups and do safety presentations. Uh, I arranged for the CHP to show up on uh, county fairs and other kinds of community uh, organization groups and church events and things like that. And so, 
I got to go out to high schools and elementary, junior high school, middle schools, and did a lot of neat stuff doing that. One time, I can remember, it was back in like 1987, and I did a presentation at, at, at Washington High School in San Francisco, like a thousand students sitting up and down the student, and and so I got to present to them. Showed the uh, you know the old red asphalt movies that they showed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we showed that yeah. and, and all of that. But it was kind of a, a safety and and and, and so and I remember that because it was such a large group of students. Okay, well, segue. I promote that down to it's two thousand two. So that was nineteen eighty seven, right? Two thousand two. I'm working. Uh, I'm a sergeant now working in, in San Mateo County, and I stopped by to assist because we had a, there was a uh, county fair in San Mateo, and, and we were helping the, uh, our division office who was also setting up a booth. So I went there and I helped out for a few hours there, and a couple of guys with their wives and, and newborn children were coming up, and they said, hey, how you doing? I says, good. And they were both, turns out, says, were you... Did you ever do a presentation at Washington High School in San Francisco back in the 80s? And I said, yeah, I did. He says, yeah, because you were the first Asian officer we'd ever saw, number one. And number two, you really inspired us. Yeah, I says, yeah, we're both San Francisco Police Department now. I said, whoa, you know, can you imagine that? What fifteen years later, these guys are now officers in the uh, uh, for a police department, and they were inspired because I was their first Asian officer they'd ever seen. That's impressive, and I, I assume that they're Asian as well. Yeah, they were, they happen to be Asian as well. So and so that was like, you know that that wow, I made a difference. You know, um, I've met uh, I ran an explorer program when I was in Solano County. We had like uh, I had like thirty kids off and on coming into our program, and. Uh, a, a number of them became officers for not necessarily for the highway patrol, although some did. One of them, um, he he went to the air force first, and then when he got out, uh, he applied for different agencies, and he got one for Las Vegas Metro Police Department, and one with the highway patrol. He was waiting for the highway patrol and Las Vegas Metro. Las Vegas Las Vegas Metro called him first, and he called me and says. You know, I want to go to the Highway Patrol, but it's been a few months, and I'm waiting and waiting. And says, "Dude, I want you to just do what you think best. If you've got an offer, don't turn it down if it's there." And so he did. He took Las Vegas Metro. When he graduated, just before his graduation, he called me up, and said, "Hey, can you come to my graduation? I want you to pin my badge on." Wow. So you know, and I got to wear my uniform in Las Vegas without my gun because we couldn't transfer out with the weapon. But I went there at the academy, at his academy graduation. I was able to pin his badge on him and what an honor. You know, so that was that's that kind of neat stuff that you can you think, Wow, I've made a difference in some lives. He's now a sergeant, for Las Vegas Metro Police Department. So it's kinda of neat to see that you had an impact. And he said that you were the best you were the best I've ever had. You you I always could count on you and you were always giving me good advice along the way. And uh yeah, that, that meant a lot to me that, that he thought so highly of me. So understandable man i mean you had a huge impact i mean yeah. that's not just something small that's a yeah. pretty big impact you changed people's lives yeah so that's very cool and you know what i also did was i i, I told my explorers said i don't necessarily re- require that you become a cop what i really want is that you are good citizens good people and i've had some where where they didn't become officers 
but they be, they earn their college degrees first in their family to earn a college degree and call me up you know they, they gave me you know the, the, they those the things that they um um, uh, that you can put over your your shoulders and stuff like that. That had their their uh, uh, sorority or fraternity, and uh, and that they graduated the college. And they gave me one of those as kind of a memory to, to, to memorialize that they graduated. And I, I helped them, you know, gave them gave them guidance to get there. So I had a few of those, and so that's that's good stuff. That's that's the stuff that you you get all kind of charged up about because I don't care if you become a cop. I just want you to be good people. And earning your college degree, you know, getting, you know, doing, doing well in your work. God, what, what more can you, can you ask for from people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's impeccable, man. And if I'm not mistaken, is it the sash? Like you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, sash, yeah. And they gave you one. Yeah. That's all. You still have it? Yes, it's, oh. I have them. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's very important to me. And then later, I, I, I did the same thing when I was teaching. I, I was, I had the opportunity to, be, to teach a criminal justice program for a private college, and I ran the program for three years. And when I was running the program as director, I implemented a program where, where we created a, a um, police uh, fraternity for our school. And so all of our students became members of a fraternity. And so here you are in a little private college where, you know, we don't have no football team. We don't have any baseball team. But you know what? We have a fraternity for our criminal justice program. And they're very proud of that. They love the fact that they are part of a fraternity. And when it came graduation time, we got them their sashes and they wore that across the, uh, across the, the stage when they were getting their diplomas. This is all such interesting stuff, man. Yeah. This is, I'll be honest with you, G. This is the first uh, the first podcast that I've had. Where it's an early show. It's only the eighth episode. But it's the first one I'm nervous. It's like I got to <laughs> like I got to interview you. I got to do good. You got all these great stories to tell, and I want to make sure that uh, it's brought to our audience the best way possible. Uh, if if you don't mind me circling back here a little mm-hmm. bit when we we're referencing the sheriffs and the police station. Oh yeah, God, I'm so bad um, at that. Sorry about no, that. You're, you're I digressed. Good. I mean, you're good. I, mean, I would have <laughs> forgot too, but I was like mental check, mental check. So, yeah. Uh, yeah we, well, oh, a specific question. Mm-hmm. Um, so was there like uh, like a ranking system? So you know how like different branches of the military, they, mm-hmm. some of them may look down like uh, the Marines, right? They're the prestig- quote unquote prestigious ones. They look down on the the grunts and the army and stuff <laughs> like that. Is there any sort of similarity between the law? Well. I think there's some. Sometimes there's some friendly banter. <laughs> okay. Actually, between law enforcement agencies, not so much as it is law enforcement and firefighters. Uh, cops and you know, like here in Sacramento region, they have the 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 the, the cops and uh, cops and firefighters uh, annual football game. And uh, it's a friendly rivalry between the firefighters and the police officers. And, you know, but that's something that's actually more prevalent, I think, than uh, eight police agency to police agency. There's generally a pretty decent respect for for amongst police agencies. And, you know, I've worked with both police and and uh, sheriff's departments and we get along great. And and I've had very I, I i don't off the top of my head i have no recollection or recall of any bad moments between myself and 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 the local police departments or sheriff's departments if anything it's the opposite we've I've always had very good reactions and good relations with each other good, good. and what you were referencing was the uh the pig bowl correct yes the guns versus hoses. yes yeah yeah classic stuff classic yeah stuff. 
But you know what? I know guys who they go to the fire stations to have a cup of coffee with them. So, and during the Rodney King riots, <laughs> we were stations with fire uh, at fire uh, stations, and our job was because the initial um, Rodney King riots, when they went out, they were getting pelted. There, at some cases, they were actually getting shot at, and so uh, I was up. I was teaching at the academy at the time. And so we created, the Highway Patrol sent like 2,000 officers into the SoCal area. And we broke them up into two squads of, 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 of about 10, 12 officers and uh, amongst various vehicles. And we would go to a, you know, go to the fire station and wherever they rolled, we rolled with them and created a perimeter to protect them as they were fighting the fires. So you're, you're boots on the ground during the riot, but to provide protection. I'm sorry, you're boots on the ground yes. during the, um, the Rodney King riots, but to per, or, but to secure the transportation of the fire department. Yes, that was one of that was among the the assignments we had, and that was for us. That was one of our primary ones. Okay, no, that's interesting. <laughs> Again, so much interesting stuff. I, and I apologize because when I first brought back up the uh, sheriff and police mm -hmm. officers, you had something to say, and I interrupted with no, a specific no, not at question. All. Do you recall what that thought was? Um, I became great friends with some of the sheriff's department uh, deputies, and I mean, to this day, I'm still in contact with several of them. And uh, a lot of them moved out of state, but that's just you know the choices of the, after retirement. But we have we, you develop really strong bonds with a lot of different you know law enforcement officers. I have some friends who are Department of Corrections. I have friends who are you know police department, San Francisco Police Department. Uh, you know, so you become good friends with a number of them, and some you come really really close. Now, in my particular case, probably the closest ones are some of my graveyard partners. And uh, one of them was the, is the godfather of my of my two kids, and you know he and I were graveyard partners. And I mean, here's a guy who, when you first look at him, he looks like what you don't want a cop to be. <laughs> and I say that with a smile on my face because he was out of sh he, he he had a, t a tummy. He didn't look really pretty in his uniform, and he wasn't the most you know you could see what he had for lunch on his tie sometimes and that kind of thing. So he wasn't. But he was the nicest man, and he could de-escalate a situation in 10 seconds flat. I mean, he was a great officer. You know, he didn't look pretty, so to speak. He, would, he didn't look like Eric Estrada or anything like that. But you know what? He was such an effective officer, and he was such a great guy. And he and I became, you know, the best of friends. And like I said, he was the godfather of my children. That's how close of a bond that he and I had. No, I mean, overnight, same car together. I mean, I can imagine. Yeah. You're either going to hate each other or love yeah. each other. <laughs> and, and, and most of the time, you'd think that guys would pair up because they like each other and they, they know they can get along. I know of one pair when I worked in San Mateo County where it was a senior officer and a relatively junior officer. And uh, they didn't really care for each other, but they both wanted to work night shift. And so when they worked, they were very, take care of that. Yeah, okay. And then, and, and there was very one word, two word answers between themselves. They got the job done. I was a supervisor, you know, I was happy to have them there because they took care of business and all that. But I used to watch them. They barely talked to each other. They didn't, you know, and, and, and I asked a couple of the other officers because, and they said, yeah, they, they don't really like each other, but they want the same shift. And, you know, and the junior guy benefits from the senior guy because the senior guy wants certain days off and the junior guy is happy to get those days off with them. 
insult, but it was so funny just to watch them interact because it was very, very, uh, you know, distant. <laughs> very bittersweet, if you will. Yeah, I was just, I was just wow. But but they were good. They did their jobs. And so, you know, just personalities differ. And they both benefited from, from their, their, you know, partnering. So they, they took care of business. Okay. And I'm going to go out of order here a little bit because we have touched on uh, a couple of these things already. Um you mentioned the weapons, obviously, that are had now in the police force um, and, and what you had back then. Also, you were around during the Rodney King riots. So if you can, tell us a little bit about the progression of the weapons that was okay. used. Okay, yeah, no, CHP that's a good question, actually. And, um, and a double-parter, what was done after the Rodney King? Because I know that mm -hmm. they're trying to do a little more non-lethal uh, approach because sure. at that time they didn't have tasers, am I correct? That's correct. Actually... Tasers didn't come start going out to officers until the early or the the late two thousand nine ten that period, and I retired at the end of twenty ten. But good question. When I joined the Highway Patrol, they gave me a six shooter. <laughs> I had a Smith and Weston Model thirty uh, Model uh, sixty seven. It was a four inch barrel six round uh, pistol. You know, uh, cylinder. And so, you know, they call it a wheel gun. And so you had six shots and they gave you two speed loaders, which, you know, the bullets are, are, are preset in the, in, the, in the loader so that you could do a quick reload. They gave you two speed loaders, so you had a total of 18 bullets with you when you went out on patrol. Now, back in the day, that was probably sufficient. When I first got on the road, and then when, especially when I worked graveyards with, I had a, a academy classmate. We both graduated together. He and I worked graveyards together, and we're looking at what we were carrying. I said, "Man, if some guy comes out with a with a with a semi-auto like a nine millimeter, just his one clip would probably take us out." You know, so so we ended up getting you know what we call double stack of uh, that allowed us to carry four speed loaders. And so that get you know now we got a few more bullets now we got thirty bullets, <laughs> and then then I carried a little two inch revolver five shot in my on an ankle holster, and that was when you're when you're new in the job you're afraid or I wouldn't necessarily say afraid but you want to take all precautions, and so you I'm carrying you know now I'm carrying a stack load of of, of, of four speed loaders I got a, a backup weapon in my on my ankle holster so I'm carrying extra stuff. Uh, we had just come out with the PR-24, which is the side handle baton. And so the PR-24 was, was considered newfangled because it used to be that you had a straight wood stick. Now now this one's made of aircraft aluminum, so it shouldn't break as easily. <laughs> It'll bend, but it won't break. And um, we, we had peppers. Well, at the time, we had, we had mace, which is a chemical uh, as opposed to current day they use pepper spray. So th those were our, our primary uh, items of uh, that we carried going out on patrol. So you had a, uh, a six-shot handgun. You had some speed loaders. You had pepper or I should say mace at that time. And then we had a baton, our PR-24. Uh, yes, you have handcuffs. And you, know, you carry your radio as well. And we used to joke because the radios were kind of iffy at times. Um, we called they called them repeaters because what it did it was it bounced off the the radio that in your car, and so it repeated what you what was being said as opposed to uh, being independent radio. It's a nomenclature, I guess. So you know that was what you carried, and uh, in the night early 90, 1990, 91, 
uh, we transitioned to the first semi-automatic the Highway Patrol carried, and we went with a 40 caliber. The revolvers were 38 caliber. Then we went in 1990 to the the, the Smith and Wesson uh, 40 caliber tactical. Now we were carrying a, a magazine that had 11 rounds, and then you had the uh, then you had one one round in the chamber, so you had 12 rounds immediately, as opposed to the original of six rounds. So right away you doubled what you had. Uh, in initial encounter and then you can carry i carried four four magazines so i had you know four four mags of 11 to go with it so now i'm a little better gunned and yeah. I, you know officers have <laughs> that makes a big difference you, you you how you feel well yeah because i mean other than what was it the walkie-talkie and the mace you probably had the same uh setup as like wide herb or something <laughs> you think huh sometimes it seemed that way but you know, they improved. The pepper spray was what was said to be more effective, so they went to pepper spray and got rid of the the mace, the chemical mace, and then um, continued to carry the PR twenty four. And it wasn't until you know two thousand nine, two thousand ten that we started transitioning and started getting tasers. And by that time, that was going. I was getting ready to 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 call it a career, but but as a supervisor, as a sergeant, I I I was assigned a taser so that I could. Uh, they trusted us as sergeants to be able to deploy those with with judiciously. <clears throat> so had a taser, and uh, I'm trying to think if we carried anything at that point. That was pretty much what we carried. So the taser, handgun, um, extra mags, your your pepper spray, and your baton. That was primarily what you were carrying, and that's pretty much standard now, for the most part of what officers are carrying. Have you have you seen the video? I, I believe the gentleman uh, he has gas in his backpack, but the officer doesn't know it, and he's chasing him, and he tases him, and he catches on fire. Oh, okay. Um, not sure what that was, so I probably shouldn't comment too much on on that one. But depending on the type of assignment you have, you have some officers who are who um, they might be part of a on call SWAT team, so they may have additional items that they carry. Um, and so that might be what, what, what that might've been. Uh, but I couldn't, I don't have enough info on that one to even tell you why he had it. Unless of course he was, like I said, part of a special response team. Yeah. Well, I, again, I think it was just a regular taser or whatever. It's just, I yeah. guy had gas in his backpack. So like, the bad guy. Correct. Okay. Correct. correct. Yeah. 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 My it is an electrical charge and it does spark. So yeah, it'll, it, it could potentially cause that. Yeah. Here, I'll, I'll pull it up here for you. Oh, so my bad. I misunderstood. I thought you said the officer might have had something on him that caused that sparked. So my apologies. Not so let me pull this up. So he's chasing him. Oh wow. So okay. he's on a motorcycle. Okay, and so he's running. They fired a taser, and I guess it sparked. Wow. Wow, crazy. And yeah. That should be an officer, right? Because you're like, oh, shit, what just happened? Yeah, yeah. Like, why is this guy on fire? Yeah. All I did was tase him. Yeah. You thought, holy crap. Now, that's a big flame. So I don't know if it's just uh, pepper spray. He's like, he had some kind of of uh, oh, yeah, liquid or something. Uh, no, I understand oh, the tasing sorry, part. Sorry, 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 I'm saying sorry. that whatever he hit, that guy must have had some kind of liquid gotcha, with gotcha. him. Because that, that, if it goes up like that, that's a big explosion. That's not just gas. That's that's a big explosion. That I, I'm thinking it's some kind of liquid, um, flammable liquid that that got hit and sparked and then created that explosion. Yeah. 
I mean, I have no idea. I've never tased anybody. Yeah, and I, I'm I, just reading the headlines. Well, <laughs> I haven't guess, either, so actually. <laughs> so, yeah, I've never tased anybody. I've, like everything else, I've done a lot of threatening to use because you put yourself like baton, pepper spray. A lot of times you, you pull it out and you put it yourself in a defensive position with the with and advise them that, guess what? I may have to use this on you. Are you sure you want to go that direction? And I, I kind of talk to them that way. I, I don't necessarily have to yell so much. I said, put it down, put it down, or else. And and usually if they have a weapon, my handgun is out. I'm not even going for a taser because reaction time, if the guy comes at me and the taser doesn't work, is very poor. So it's going to be my weapon, my handgun is going to be out as opposed to a taser or something like that. But if the person is, 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 is being... I don't know, resistive, if you will, and or it looks like he wants to do something to you, but he's not carrying a weapon, then, you know, you have what they call force alternatives. You can use your baton, you can use your pepper spray, you can use your taser. Each one is a different escalation of force, and they train you as to which one you want to use. They want you to be comfortable to be able to use all of them, and you have a choice based on the circumstances presented to you what are you going to do? How do you want to approach this? You know, and in other cases, with a person carrying a knife, it sounds so good to say, just shoot him in the leg. They said, you know what? That's not how you're trained, and you can't assume that, because I've seen people who have been shot in the chest, or I should say I've seen videos of people who have been shot in the chest and are still coming at people. Mm-hmm. And back in the day when I first got on in the 80s, PCP was the big one of the big drugs that was an additive to marijuana and some other drugs. And PCP was originally a horse tranquilizer. And so taken in, in sufficient quantities, and it was, wasn't a whole lot, the person who took the tranquilizer, um, they were pretty much impervious to pain. And they t- I remember going to the academy, they were telling us the first CHP encounter with somebody on PCP. The officer you know, was fighting this guy, and he kept coming at him, and finally he shot him, and he kept giving, coming back up. He shot the guy three times in the chest. And he still kept getting up and attacking the officer. That's how scary PCP was. When I got off, when I, when, when I went through the training, when you get out of the academy, they don't just give you a, a car keys and go out and patrol. They gave they, You go through what we call uh, FTO or field training officer uh, program. And your FTO, in our case, we had three different FTOs. And they had anywhere from 10 to 15 days working with you. And um, they, over a two to three month period, these FTOs would, would, would impart their knowledge and training to you, evaluate you as you're going along to make sure you knew what you're doing. And by the third FTO, you should show the ability to be able to patrol on your own without causing too much damage. <laughs> and so, and then, then it's just kind of a, you learn from your, your mistakes and do the job correctly and just follow procedures as you've been trained to do and you should do fine. So... One of my, my first encounters with PCP, I was with one of my training officers, and fortunately, he recognized what was going on. He says, oh, this guy's dusted, because he's called Angel Dust, so this guy's dusted. And so this guy, he had this, what one of the symptoms was he had a strained voice, because because what happens when you take PCP is your muscles are very rigid. You're const- it's almost like you're constantly flexing. And part of why they they have superhuman strength is that they don't feel the pain and they're flexed. They can they're they're ready for the fight. And so this guy was had all those, but he said, just keep him calm. And if you keep him calm, he'll more or less do what you ask him to do. 
you know, we'll put the cuffs on them quietly and without making a big production of it. And then started asking questions. And um, I remember his first name. I remember his full name, but I remember his first name was Raymond. I said, hey, Raymond, you doing okay? Can you do what I'm asking you to do? And my FTO was kind of be- behind me, kind of whispering, you know, do this, do that. And so it was a it was a non-event as far as he didn't go crazy on us and he didn't fight or anything like that. But my next encounter was when another officer encountered a guy who was on who was on PTV. He was a fighter, and I remember we were like four, five of us jumping on top of this guy, and he was still doing push-ups with all of us on top of him. Like, what are you doing? Why are you fighting me? <laughs> and he's just, oh my god, you know, you're trying to hold this guy down and trying to get him cuffed, and he was just, you know, they if if you were one on one, these guys, the guy who was on PCP could throw you around like you're a rag doll. So what we learned was. Body mass, lots of us just holding him down and then hurry, try to get the cuffs on as quickly as you can and, and then try to calm him down from that point so they can't hurt other people. Crazy stuff? I can only imagine. I've, I've, heard, I've heard a few stories about that. Uh, one of them was actually on another podcast where the guy was a retired uh, police officer. And uh, yeah, he said there'd be like 12 of them circling around a big butt-naked dude and yes. <laughs> just trying to, yes. trying to tackle him. And, uh, yeah, that... That was one of the things that, because Angel well, PCP, what it does is that elevated your body temperature, and uh, and you had all this energy, and so it was not unusual for someone who was on PCP to remove all their clothing because they're so hot, and literally, you, they would run down the road trying to burn off that energy, and it was crazy because yeah, that's <laughs> you'd get calls, and so you're responding, and you say, oh great, now I got to deal with a naked guy, yeah, you know, and and. Trying to subdue a naked guy is kind of the worst things in the world you have to yeah. do. And I've had to do that a few times, and that's not the funnest thing to have to do. <laughs> were they on PCP or were they drunk? Uh, I've had both. 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 One PCP, naked dude, and one drunk naked dude. <laughs> when people drink a lot, they, they do silly things too. And yeah, yeah. they say it's it's a depressant, but you know, alcohol, like any other drug, it can affect people different ways. And I've had some people, I've seen some people who are just the happiest people in the world and very, very compliant with what you're asking them to do. And then you got the others who are just, they're, fi- they're in for the fight and they're not going to go down regardless how many bodies are coming at them. And, and speaking of which, you mind if I have a beer here? Oh, knock door? yourself out. Awesome, awesome. You're I'm home, so you're not going nowhere. I'm not driving, I'm not driving, I'm not driving, no, not at all. It seems like you keep segueing into exactly what I'm going to ask you. I was going to ask you um, what your craziest drug story was, whether it be dealing with somebody like a naked guy on PCP <laughs> or you pull over somebody with 50 pounds of you know cocaine in their trunk. You know, I'm going to tell you a story that actually... Recording. Okay, yeah. I'm going to tell you a story that actually we ended up releasing them. And it shows you how the world works and how people understand the law. One of our officers pulled over this van, and it was really funny because it was a beautiful van, and it had beautiful artwork around it. And then when you look closely at the artwork, because it was green and it had, um, you know, darker colors, uh, black and uh, various shades of green, but it was all all the paintings and everything were of of women like doing pole dancing and stuff. Oh jeez! Yeah, so really kind of wow, look at that. And so the officer had pulled the, the van over for speeding. And uh, when he looked inside, you could see in the back of the van, and it had all these red Solo cups with baby marijuana plants on them. 
cannabis plants. And so he said, oh, you know, I think I got something here. And so he ended up arresting the guy. And said, I'm going to take you into our office. We're going to call in our, our, our uh, um, uh, the, the county uh, narcotics team. And they came in. And they, they looked at the van. They looked at all the guys. And it turns out he had exactly 99 plants. And if you had 100, they could make an arrest. So he had 99 he had 99 in, van. in his what van. What was this? This was 2003 or four. Okay. So, so medical marijuana yeah. was legal at this point, and he was transporting, and he was taking it to a grow location up north, and he had, was driving across, you know, uh, Interstate 280, going across and going to Highway 1 to follow the rest of the way down to Oregon or wherever he was going. And it was just the funniest thing. He says, hey, the, 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 nar- the, the narcotics officer, he says, he's legal. <laughs> I says, okay. <laughs> so, so I thought that was kind of funny because that was just, I remember the van very vividly because it was all these, you know, different girls pole dancing on, on the side of the van. So. <laughs> Full of, full of baby weed plants and so he you know so it was just that to me was just hilarious because we got, this guy knew exactly what he could and couldn't do he was following the law and so you know but this was relatively new for us law enforcement wise you know where you could transport you know uh, um, weed in certain various numbers and he was just legal so he couldn't do anything and you know he was very cooperative he was cool and everything like that so hey you're on your way sorry for the inconvenience and you know we appreciate your cooperation and he went on did it did what he needed to do we did what we did and everything was copacetic next how was how was that how was the transition with uh, medical marijuana because before um so like from like when i was a teenager i know that it's a, a felony or whatever if you had more right if you had more yeah. than an ounce yeah more than like 28.5 yeah. or something like that yes um was it always that limit or was it less and let's say you know, it, it over the stage over the period of time marijuana slowly started dropping down in severity as far as punishments were concerned um a lot of times, uh, uh, departmental policies would be such that um, if you've got somebody with some marijuana on them, and it was it was a very small amount, you know, back in the day, it was a misdemeanor, you could make arrest. At that point, you know, they were giving, uh, they just write you a ticket and confiscate the, the little baggie of weed that you had. And so it marijuana specifically, cannabis, it came down, uh, down from a, you know, I should say, within the state of California, it came down from a serious, you know, felony type uh, of, of a drug to to now it's legal for for purchase. So, you know, that's one particular drug that 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 um, uh, became less of an issue for law enforcement because if you stop somebody and they produced a a medical card saying I'm allowed, hey, what do you do? You're legal. Be careful. Drive safe. Did you ever encounter um, someone in a traffic stop that was high on marijuana or had a lot of marijuana in the car? And if so, how did they act as opposed to maybe compared to the drunk driver? Depending, when you say you had a lot in the car, you know, you've got some who were doing transport and you had some who were just, they had a lot in the car because they, they, let's say they, they scored a big score on a purchase or something like that. And you treat them differently. You treat them appropriately depending on the severity of it. If you've got somebody who's got a lot, 
you call in, uh, you know, task force officers, and their job is to follow up with the investigation and and take the the take the investigation to the next level. The involved officer stays with that investigation, but um, and I've never I never grabbed any vehicle that had that much. But I've had officers as a supervisor who found some and, you know, they, they took the appropriate measures and called the appropriate uh, task forces to assist and follow up on, you know, is there a, a bigger source where it's coming from, that kind of thing. So those that goes beyond, you know, your your beat cop uh, uh, handling of of, an, of, an, of drug drug fines. OK, have you ever had any violent situations with anyone you pulled over? You know, um, violence comes in levels also. Um, I've been fortunate that in my career, most of the stuff that I've dealt with were manageable. And on the one-on-ones and the two-on-ones, meaning two officers, one one suspect. Uh, you know, like I talked to you about, I had two women were the worst fights I have ever had. And, you know, I remember the first one was she, she wasn't even the driver. She was the passenger. But the, 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 the car that we stopped was going the wrong way in a one-way street. And so we made the stop, pulled the, pulled the, the driver out. He was, he was very cooperative. You know, he realized after we stopped him, oh, you're going the wrong way? Yeah, it's one way this way, and you're going the wrong way. Oh, okay. And so my partner was the one who was doing the, the DUI investigation. Turned out he was under the influence, was making the arrest. And it was really funny because I went up. It was a female passenger, and she was you know, a very attractive young, young lady. And I said, hi, you know, we're, we're investigating the the your um, the driver here over here for possible DUI. He says, who is he to you? Is he your boyfriend, your husband? He says, he's my lover. I said, okay, well, why don't you wait here, and I'll be back, and I'll keep you apprised of what's going on. So I go back, and, you know, and, and my partner says, yeah, he's good to go. So we, we he starts arresting him. And as I'm walking up towards her, she gets out of the car as, as he's being arrested, getting the handcuffs on, and she's coming up at us, and she says, what are you doing? He says, you know, as I told you, we're doing the the DOI investigation, he's under the influence. You can't take him. And she winds up and she takes a big old roundhouse swing at me. And so I go, whoa, I just, I took a half a step back and the fist went by my face and then she lost her balance. And I grabbed her and I threw up against a fence that happened to be there. There was a, a chain link fence. And so, you know, I, we struggled for a little bit, but I got the, put your arm, keep your arm back here. I'm going to place you under arrest too. I guess you're going to be joining him. And so, you know, I get, hit the handcuffs on there and get there and there. She's fighting, you know, struggling and all that. But I says, look, you're going to go with him. The more cooperative you are, the more likely when you get to the jail, they'll just let you on your own, let you out on your own recognizance. They're not going to even charge you with anything. And so finally, after a little while, she says, oh, okay. <laughs> and so she stopped fighting. And so we put her in the back seat with, with, with her lover and uh, they, as they're sitting in the back seat and we're doing the paperwork because you know we don't tow the car because we were able to find a legal place where we could park the car so we tried to help people out because towing a car that's a two and two or three hundred dollar expenditure on on a person so so if we can help them out by just parking their car legally on the city streets we'll do that uh, and also saves time but uh, in this particular, yeah, in this particular case, we were able to do that. But as we're doing the other paperwork, getting them ready to take them to the to the county jail, 
I'm looking back, and she's nuzzling up against her, her I'll say boyfriend, and, and she's rubbing up against her. Oh, it's great. I'm getting so excited. And I said, oh, my goodness. You know, and she's it's just all that. <laughs> and she's just, okay, she's having a good time. And so I had to do her arrest report, and my partner's doing the arrest report on, on, on him. We get to the, to, the, uh, to the county jail area, and this is where you can give them the option of the chemical test they have to do to do the, uh, uh, determine their, how high, if they're legally under the influence. He chose a breath test because we can find out immediately what your blood alcohol level is. He blew into it in the machine, and he's legal. So, cool. So, we sit them both down, and we're in kind of a waiting area to finish up the, because the, you have to do a booking sheet and all that. And I told you she was attractive. All the other officers walking back, 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 forth, they noticed that she's just wearing a, a sheer top and no bra. So, they're all, you know, guys being guys. And this is, mind you, this is 1980s, so luring was more accepted back then. And you know, it's a guy going, oh, look at that. Oh, can we be my friend? <laughs> Stuff. And yeah, they, they get everybody in trouble in, in today's world. But, uh, you know, so she, she kind of enjoyed that, 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 uh, that attention from all these officers. And so she's sitting up and kind of wiggling around and stuff like that. And, and then the boyfriend says, well, you settle down, stop this stuff. And so it was kind of funny watching that whole process. And finally, we, we take him up to the, to the jail where they're actually getting booked. And I think that's when it started to get real to her. He says, I have to go to jail? He says, yeah. <laughs> not exciting anymore. You can't swing at officers and think it's okay. <laughs> And so, and so she, she she was cool about it at that point. But I think you know even the actually I have to say that that the the county uh, the deputies who were at the jail appreciated her presence <laughs> for for obvious reasons. But so but that was that was one of the ones where that was kind of a funny one. Um, one of the other one ones where I had a my graveyard partner and I we stopped a woman. This is again in San Francisco, and. It was raining cats and dogs that day, kind of like some of the weather we have here. And this car is going all over the road, all over the freeway there. And so we were able to pull the car over where there was an overcrossing. So we had, actually had a dry spot. And it was actually also where there was a bus stop there. So there was a few people sitting there waiting to catch a bus, staying underneath the overcrossing so they could stay dry too, waiting for the bus. Now, if you ever seen officers on rainy days, we wear raincoats, rubber pants, and rubber boots, and all that stuff. And the boots that we wear, they're not nearly as, as at that time anyway, they were not nearly, they didn't give you any ankle support. You flopped around inside those boots. So you, you didn't want to have to get into a fight with all that stuff on. Well, it was my out. We pulled her over. And before we even give field sobriety tests, we ask, okay, are you under the care of a doctor or dentist? Because you, you're trying to eliminate if they have a medical issue, if they have any other kinds of issues that, that might be causing them to drive poorly. And so among the questions, are you under care of a doctor or dentist? Says, yeah, I'm a, a doctor. Says, uh, and what are you seeing the doctor for? Says, I'm pregnant. I said, wow, you know, here's a girl who's driving under the influence and she's pregnant. So I said, wow, okay. Well, ask a few more of the other questions I get. And then once I, I'm satisfied that there's nothing else causing poor driving, give her the field sobriety tests and she does not pass them. So I say, okay. So I look at my partner and I, I do this thing where you, I curl my finger and, it's, and it looks like a hook. And says, so, yeah, we're going to hook her up, meaning we're, gonna, we're, we're going to go under arrest. 
So I get one handcuff on her because we have a technique that you handcuff. And then the other hand, you put her in a control hold so that if you bend the wrist, it should cause pain compliance and that they'll stop fighting. Well, I got the handcuff on one and then she started to fight, started to pull away. My partner tried to grab her arm and I started to try to crank down on her wrist and her fingers were touching her forearm, which meant she was very, very flexible. <laughs> so, oh my God, she's not, you know, I meant so, whoa, she's still fighting and her fingers are touching for her. And so we're literally doing this dance. We're doing this little twirl on the, on the sidewalk of a, of a, of a overcrossing. And I'm, I know the people watching us are going, what's going on over there? And, and we're trying not to hurt her, you know, cause yeah. I, you we, were allowed, and, and, and I, I joked about it to my partner much later. He says, man, I can just see the newspaper headlines. CHP officers beat pregnant woman. <laughs> Even back in the 80s, I thought that way, you know? So, oh, God, this is going to look bad. So we're trying so hard not to hurt her. And so suddenly she just drops to the ground. So we fall on top of her. But when we fall on top of her, we lose grip of her hands and stuff like that. And so he's trying to grab the other arm with the cuff because when you swing that hand with the cuff flying around, that cuff hits you. That can brain you. And so I've, I'm still holding onto that arm, but I, I, I don't really have a control hole on her. But her head is next to my, my, my shoulder. And all of a sudden, I see her turn her head, and then she bites down on my shoulder. <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. Now, I had a raincoat on. I have my uniform on. I have a shoulder patch there and a T-shirt underneath. So she really bit down hard. I didn't really feel it because I had so much, you know, uh, coverage on that arm but she was biting down hard and finally he says well for the first time ever i had to hit somebody and i hit her in the face just to get her to unlatch her teeth from my shoulder <laughs> so i popped her once and she let she got the surprise look and let you know let let go of my shoulder from her teeth and then we picked her back up to her over the hood of the car and was able to finally get the second cuff on her and uh, put her in the in the back of the car. Now, most CHP cars do not have what they call cages. You know how they have the screen separating back seat, front seat. Ours that particular night did. So we were able to put her in the car with a cage. So that was cool. That that was fortunate for that night. And so we we look out there. My batons over there. My radios over there on the ground. My, you know, it, everything's all over the place. You know, and so we so we we're picking up our stuff and putting it back on our gun belts and stuff like that. And and we're looking back there, and she's all of a sudden she starts yelling, "Hey, hey!" And so what? And she puts her face against the screen, and says, "If I be nice, will you let me go?" <laughs> and so I said, uh, "No, we're past that." <laughs> and then. You know, after all that was said, and, you know, we called the supervisor, the sergeant came out and says, what happened? She bit me. <laughs> she, yeah, that's assault. <laughs> and so later on, we took off my shirt, and I had four teeth marks, two upper, two lower, on my shoulder. That's how hard she bit, despite having... And everything. Yeah, with all that on. She didn't break the skin, but the pressure marks were there. And and so you see the red marks from the pressure marks. Like, wow. So they had to take pictures of that and all that for that one. But that was like, wow, this is crazy. But that was, and you know, I've been in a few others where, where it wasn't my arrest and we were helping other officers take people. That was, you know, my worst as far as, you know, in, incurring any kind of injury. And that was like, whew, I just got bit. Yeah, and I think it would be instinctual if you're in a tussle with somebody and they bite you. Just... <laughs> yeah, and that's more or less what I did. Because yeah. the funny part was I, I looked and I was shocked more than because this was my first someone, the only time really that anyone ever bit me on the job. 
And it was like, <laughs> you stop, you stare, you realize what she's doing. It's not hurting because there's something, you know, because of the thickness of all the clothing and, and the layers of clothing. But she's not letting up either. She's trying to bite as hard as she can. So that's why I said, fine. I said, okay. So I popped her once on the side of the head and she let go. And I think she was shocked that I hit her. But I had to, you know, you're not letting go. So I have to do something to, to defend myself. And when she let go, I didn't, I didn't have to punch her anymore. But it's just the one hit, and then she let go, and then we picked her up and put her against the patrol car. We were able to get the second cuff on and put her in the car. But, you know, I often wondered, man, she's pregnant. What kind of life is this child going to have? Yeah, that's sad. And, and for your safety as well, I mean, good thing you didn't break the skin, because yep. you don't know if she could have yep. some sort of disease. Or... And I've had to record, because we've had a couple occasions where uh, you come up on somebody who, who is... Who is uh, who has full-blown AIDS, and so we record that um, just because they. One time, the guy had some open wounds, and you you got gloves on and everything, but you record it because you never know. Because I believe there's one officer in the Highway Patrol who actually died from exposure to AIDS while on duty. Now it's again back in the 80s. Yeah, now now the officers have to worry about fentanyl. No, all kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah. yeah, we had another officer who we have these test kits for different types of drugs and when you put the test kit in and test the drug you're supposed to smell the 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 vapor and what they thought it was it wasn't and the officer actually went in convulsions well what did it end up being i forget what it was that's but that's that's i wish i could tell you but 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 it was that's when they started to realize that you know what there's stuff out there that you can't automatically assume that it's supposed to smell a certain way and the officer did what the instructions told him and then it you know clearly it he reacted to what it was and to what it was and it was something that you know really affected the officer so that's why i don't i don't know if that that test is still available but that shows you that that there's stuff out there that um you have to be super careful because some of that stuff is not what you think it is and it can be a lot worse yeah yeah the, the white powdery stuff the anthrax the fentanyl could be anything um we appreciate your time. I don't want to keep you out past your uh, curfew or anything like that. We, have, <laughs> we have like four questions left. Sure, you want sure. To keep rolling, or yeah, I, right. I have no time limit. I can go until you know whatever. Awesome. My wife has said you can take as much time as you want. <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. The real boss, you know. And like I said, I was getting nervous because like it's like the first real big interview. Um, everything's been recording. I did an interview with uh, one of the coworkers as well, Jello. Mm-hmm. Uh, he. Our, the audio got deleted, so I had to upload it all in the video. Oh. It's terrible. So that's why I checked it earlier to make sure everything's still powering on all cylinders. Good. Great. Um, so what was your most like memorable, not like, I'm talking like a, like a teenage kid. Uh, what, was your, what was your most memorable experience during your time of duty? And it could, it could range from anything memorable just to whatever well, sticks out to you. you know, a couple of things. Uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake, that was 1989. And I was working in our division office in Vallejo. And I remember I was, at that point, I had, uh, I was assigned as a recruiter. And so uh, our division office is in Vallejo, kind of the border of Vallejo, Benicia. And we were sitting, uh, I was sitting, I stayed late. I was like, I tended to stay late after five o'clock shutdown because that's when it was quiet and I could do some other work. And so... While I'm sitting there um, doing my work, uh, all of a sudden, 
all the light posts and everything outside the building because we had a very uh, panoramic view of our windows looking out across the street, where, which was a high school. All of a sudden, the poles started swaying very, very violently. I said, what's going on? And then I could see that the high school across the street from us, some of the students were in the, in the gym and they started coming out like a fire drill. I said, wow. You know, now this, they, I think they had some kind of sports event going on, which is why they were there. And so I go, whoa, what's going on here? And lo and behold, another officer comes running in and says, we just had an earthquake. I said, oh, and that part of the Bay Bridge collapsed. Oh, and then he said, and is it possible another freeway structure has collapsed also? And so because I was at our division headquarters, we had to run over and set up our command posts because that became our, it was built in that location because it's away from the direct earthquake lines. And so we could use that as a staging point. So we set up our, our command posts and this was 1989. And uh, of all things, the Giants and the A's were in the World Series. And so that would, you know, that, that, they actually credit that with a lot of people being at home or getting home early so they could watch the game or go to their nearby, you know, B&B or bar and grill so that they could, you know, watch the game from, from a friendly location. And so, you know, suddenly we had to deploy all of these officers and set up our command center so that we could start de uh, determining what our needs and operational needs were and all that. So that first day, I think I worked like, 20 26 hours before i went home and then we went on 12 12 hour shifts and one of the things that that my job was is that at that time i was also they put me from recruitment to also working public affairs or public information and so you know a week later the cypress structure had collapsed it was like a this this long structure of freeways two two deck freeway and the top deck collapsed onto the bottom deck and um, and so a number of cars were trapped underneath and they feared that, you know, as many as two or three hundred people might be underneath the section of the freeway that collapsed. And so they tried to send rescue crews in to see if there was any survivors and they did the best they could. They actually called military. The military have people who are trained to go through those kinds of cracks and crevices in buildings and structures like that and find if there are bodies there and if there are bodies, if they're alive, and if not, what they would do. And this is how they ID people. They would cut off like hands or heads or whatever and use those as how to identify people. They couldn't bring the whole body down because it was crushed, but they could get pieces of the body. And so that was something that I'd not known. That's how they did that. But so that was kind of like, ooh, <laughs> yeah. But so they did that for a week and finally, you know, okay, we think we've scoured as much as we can. They were drilling holes in the, on the, the top of the structure to go down to see if they could find bodies and, and all that. And they didn't, they, they rescued the few that were there. And then uh, after a week, they said, yeah, I think we've, we've kind of run the course. So I'm working at our command post and I'm, I'm the PIO and we get any media calls. Guess who's getting called? Me. Well, all of a sudden... The, our division chief comes up to me and, and a couple of the other commanders. And she goes, gee, he says, yes, sir. He says, they found somebody alive. After how many days was After this? about a week. Wow. And his name was Buck Helm, Bucky Helm. I remember his name. And he was trapped in the vehicle. His legs were crushed. 
and trapped in there, but he was able to kind of lean back and he was a heavier set dude. So he had a little bit more, you know, to, for his body to eat on, if you will. And so he survived the, the earthquake. Um, and so I was the one who, who was, was detailed to release that information to the media. And literally after, you know, we used a, a, um, um, a news news source that we put it out to them. They put it out to the rest of the media, and I mean, in five minutes, I got calls from NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, BBC. I got, got everybody was calling me, and I just took one call after the other, one call after the other, answered their questions, and and uh, suddenly a new new media uh, frenzy at the Cypress structure to find that survivor. Sadly, he survived another week or two, and then, but his kidneys had shut down, and they never came back, and so he he succumbed to to those injuries, and the shutdown of his kidneys. But you know that was a, a crazy time that there was a survivor like a week later. Yeah, that's a long time with no yes. food or water. Yes, exactly. Stuck with your legs smashed in the car. That, yeah, and really brief, just to throw everyone um, on game on here with this, it says that. There is actually a magnitude of 6.9 with uh, the, the Prieta, is that how you say it? Yeah, the Loma, the, the Loma Prieta earthquake, yes. Yeah, the Loma Prieta earthquake with a magnitude of 6.9 and a maximum modified Mercalli intensity of 9, in parentheses it says violent. The shock was responsible for 63 deaths and 3,757 injuries. Um, do you know what the modified Mercalli intensity is? I, no, I, I wish I could tell you about that. I'm, I'm not a seismologist, so I can give you a very educated view on that one. <laughs> well, here, let's fill, let's fill everyone else in uh, along with ourselves. I don't, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the modified Mercalli intensity scale, parentheses, MM, MMI, or MCS, developed by uh, Giuseppe Mer, Mercalli's. Uh, Mercalli's intensity scale of 1902 is a seismic intensity scale used for measuring the intensity of shaking produced by an earthquake. It measures the effect of an earthquake at a given location, distinguished from the earthquake's inherent force or strength, as measured by seismic magnitude scales. Hmm. You know, it sounds like it's one of those where it's a secondary measurement. So you might get you know, this is the speed, or it's kind of like temperatures. You know how they they, they, they have the, like it's it's 15 degrees outside, mm-hmm. but with the wind chill factor, it's this. So that's probably, my, my guess would be that it was probably something similar to that. So it was 6.9 on the Richter scale, but with this intensity enhancer that explained how the, the, the shaking would be, that it was actually closer to a 9 towards all the buildings and structures in that area. Yeah, and I think their scale might have been a little bit different. I mean, neither of us are seismologists, no, so yeah. we're not going to pretend to be educated <laughs> on the subject. Um, but that is interesting because to me, it kind of seemed like uh, maybe the aftershock, right? The yeah. damage, the shaking. Well, there's yeah, there there are a number of aftershocks. If you look at, let's say, they just had one in Syria, that that earthquake, and if you look at those cities, look at how many of those buildings all collapsed. I mean, just look at the the, 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 the in Syria, and, and it was adjacent to a second country, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the country's name, but, you know, uh, thousands of people, the, the, the numbers are like in the 20s or 30,000 people killed, and one thing you have to appreciate about the United States is that they create 
laws that demand that buildings be built structurally sound to be able to withstand X number of, you know, on a Richter scale or, you know. And if you look at what happened on that earthquake, I mean, yes, there's a lot of damage, but the number of people killed, 60, you know, 60 some odd people killed, as compared to an earthquake that happened in Syria where tens of thousands were killed, you have to think, you know, the powers that be that demanded that structures in, 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 in this country are built to be able to withstand, especially if you're an earthquake country, to be able to withstand all of the, the potential damage caused by, you know, by the moving earth. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I didn't even, I wasn't really too privy to the earthquake that you're just talking about. And Turkey is the country. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So it's the 2023 Turkey-Syria earthquake. So it actually said that it hit, um, it's, it's 7.8, by the way. Okay. 7.8. So it's bigger so than this. Than... Significantly bigger, yeah. And it struck southern and central Turkey and northern and western Syria. Um, so let me get to this. So the total... The total deaths is 55,190 with 129,490 injured. Now that's total for Turkey and Syria. So Turkey actually seems like they got the worst of it. You know, yeah. God bless. Uh, they got 47,930 deaths with 115,000 injured. And Syria had 7,250 and uh, 14,500 injured in Syria. And God bless as well. Yeah. That's, so, but that tells you the importance of this country's, you know, the, the standards they require of when they build buildings, when they build structures. Now, I have I've, my, my sister still lives in, in San Francisco. Uh, my family's home from where I grew up in, when we moved to San Francisco. Um, that home was still there and was undamaged. A lot of the homes in San Francisco were, were not badly damaged, but they still required earthquake refit after the fact. And so homes in, in, in San Francisco and in, throughout the Bay Area, they're designed well. And so you have to appreciate how our country makes the, the, the demands of that so that your home can withstand some of the, the, the natural disasters that can occur. Yeah. Um, and before I go uh, into that a little more, <clears throat> pardon me, geez, I should have got some water in here. <laughs> but anyways... Uh, the, and sorry, everyone, for bearing with me, the throat clearing. But anyways, the total damage was actually a hundred and five point one billion. Yeah. Now that's estimated, and that same the same uh, other one we couldn't really pronounce that was uh, nine for the uh, for the the oh, yeah. area. Yes. Earthquake. Yes. It was rated a nine violent. This one is twelve extreme. Yeah. And uh, when you're saying about things being structurally sound and all the precautions that you take. I, I set up mobile homes for a brief period of time in my life when I was, you know, trying to find my, my pursuit uh, career, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used to do tie-downs on, on each corner in there to prevent, like, tornadoes and things ripping your mobile right. home off of the off the ground. We don't even have those out here. I know. But we, but we still did it. Well, you know, you you prepare for the territories that you're you're at. You know, in the Bay Area... California in general, uh, earthquakes are are the are the the biggest concern. We don't have tornadoes very often in California. Yeah, we're on so many fault lines. That's right. Our... So our our concern in California is earthquakes. You go to the Midwest. Goodness gracious, tornadoes are are, are annual occurrence, and they all have names. You yeah. know. So so I 
I always have been afraid for people who buy the mobile homes and the, you know, the single wides, double wides. They're not nearly as structurally sound as a home built on a on a concrete slab or you know with with the other types of, of um, requirements. And sometimes when some of those earthquakes come at those homes, those homes get wiped out too. But you know, you prepare as best you can for circumstances. You know, you know, relating it to law enforcement. We, as law enforcement officers and the police agencies we work for, you prepare for the best you can. Now, you think about this. Our country, when we deal with our population, we are the melting pot. They always call the U.S. a melting pot. We have people from all over the world come and immigrate to this country. Here in the Sacramento region, we are considered to be the most diverse city, diverse area in the nation. You know, you have people from the Eastern European countries, you have them from the Asian countries, you have them from the other European countries, you have the Native Americans, you have the South Americans, Central Americans. We have an incredible number of people. And when you think about that, I'm going to say you're an officer. I'm going to send you out to Sacramento and do regular patrol. You could get a call. Let's say you're in the Highway Patrol, so you have to cover you know a larger area, not just one city area. In West Sac, you have a very large Eastern European uh, uh, population. Then I go to another part in, let's say, uh, Land Park. There's an actual large Asian population there. And then I go to, you know, some other areas where it might be a larger African-American community. Another part that it's, you know, your richer affluent uh, uh, Caucasian communities. Each one has a different approach because of language, culture, you know, their, their economic uh, resources available in that community. You've got to be able to bend to the needs and to be able to accommodate the needs of each of those communities. And some of those communities don't like you. And because there's a distrust for those folks, sorry, I'm too close to the radio. Oh, no, you're totally good. I just keep making, I'm like, Sam, I'm paranoid. I want to make sure that it's still recording or there's no audio. (laughs) But it's so important to to recognize that law enforcement officers have a challenge because they're not meeting one type of people. They're meeting so many different diverse peoples and cultures. and, And that's just, you're just talking race right there. What about the people who are, you know, you have the gay, lesbian, queer, uh, transgender population. You have all types of populations that have a different mindset of what they think is just and what is right and what's acceptable in their community. And you've got to be able to adjust to those differences and to be able to respect each one of them. And it's not easy. Can you imagine having to go from transition from one to another to another, all in the same day, all in the same different types of calls. Because, you know, you might get a call for, I got an auto burglary on one. And then the next call you get, you know, we got a, a armed robbery in another. You go to another one, you've got home invasion. Very diverse stuff happening. And home invasions tend to be towards uh, minority uh, uh, victims. Because you got a lot of Asian communities, they don't trust banks, so they keep all their goods at home. That might be what the practice is in that family. That's why they got targeted. You know, and then you go to another community where the community flat out doesn't trust you. And so when you're trying to get information on potential suspects, no one wants to come forward. They're more afraid of the suspect than they are of the, of the, the ability of the law enforcement to be able to go after the bad guy. Yeah. So you have all these different, you know, issues that you have to deal with. 
law enforcement's a very tough uh, career path. It's rewarding. There's a lot of good things you do out there. And if you put some effort towards getting to know those communities, they'll appreciate your efforts. But you're not always going to please everybody when you're when you're first guy there. Yeah, and you can't really treat everyone the same because, like you said, different culture mm-hmm. is a way to. Some things might be polite to us, but rude to another culture, and vice versa. Like shaking hands, things like that. Yes. And um, we've touched we touch on this uh, actually with a few other episodes as well. The diversity of our area because. It's a beautiful thing. Um, you said you were from Vegas. Yes. And there was just mostly Caucasian and like mm-hmm. maybe a couple Chinese here and there. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in a really small town, very rural, only a couple hundred people population. And there is really only three races, to be honest. There, there, there's uh, Mexicans, uh, Indians, and Caucasians. So mm-hmm. there's just those three. We had like uh, an African-American family that moved in for mm-hmm. like a little while. Uh, I was a child. I, I, I God hopes that nothing bad happened to him. I, the town, I didn't get that type of vibe. I just want to make that very clear for everyone listening. <laughs> but uh, for whatever reason, they only lived there for a little bit of time. But I'm just expanding on the fact that both of us didn't really have a diverse uh, hometown. Right. So then I moved out here, and it was beautiful. I was like, whoa, there's so much more to this world. And it enlightens you because you have friends of all different ethnicities. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There's things that I had that I would have never had if I would have just been in my, my little bubble. Right. It, food, uh, culture, music, all mm-hmm. that stuff. And with, with, with all that being said, um, bam. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the beauty of who we are is our diversity, I think. You know, because um, my three brothers or my two brothers and myself, the three boys, currently we're all married to, and the first two, they were married to the same wife this whole time. They're both uh, married Caucasian. My second wife is Caucasian. I didn't put it as a uh, you know barrier or a requirement. just happened to be that's who I married. My first wife will happen to be Chinese. But it just goes to show you that, that in my family, the race didn't matter. Now, environment made a difference. My oldest brother was, but was from went to high school in Vegas, but well, graduated high school in Vegas. But he met his wife in Colorado when he was going to, to college in Denver. And then my brother, he met his wife, you know, when he moved to San Francisco. And in a city where there's sixty percent Asian, he found the Caucasian woman. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, it's just, you know, we're, we're kind of colorblind on that one. My second wife, you know, her first husband was Mexican. So she didn't place place any kind of barriers on who she wanted to be with. She just wanted a good person, and I'd like to think I'm a good person. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we get along well, and that, that was part of what, you know, what we brought to the table. So this diversity, you know, it, it creates a, a whole different dynamic when you put it towards law enforcement. Unfortunately... Most people call us when something bad's happened. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you're not finding these people at their best. Yeah. And when they're not at their best, especially if they're angry, they're scared, whatever it happens to be, they're very emotional. And so they're demanding certain things of us that we, we have to do some steps before we can just take action. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that that's part of that that difficulty that some people don't quite understand when we get there. You know, why aren't you doing something? Well, I can't just chase somebody if I don't know who I'm chasing. 
and take the other person's word for it. Just hop right, right into us. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you want to corroborate what one person sees to another person sees. One person saw a license plate. Another person could make, give me a make and model of the car. Another person can give me a description of the suspect. You know, but it's never from one source. You have to kind of bounce around to get all the information you need. And it's not, and it's not, you get it in one minute. You know, it takes several minutes, if not more, to get all that information. That's why, you know, when I was dealing with the media and they're saying, can you give us a synopsis of what happened? Well, my, my, my favorite lines to use, because it kept me out of trouble with the media, I would say, my, the, our preliminary invest, investigation suggests that this is what has occurred thus far. We're still investigating to determine if our original premise is correct. See, so I'm saying we're looking at it preliminarily. This is what we got, but it could change. We're still investigating, right? By saying that, you keep you protect your department because you're doing something. I'm giving them some information, so we're trying to do something, but we want to make sure that we get the right info before we, you know, go whole hog or you know, make sure we're not targeting the wrong people uh, for 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 you know, putting out a all points bulletin or APB. That you see on the on, on radios and TV shows. Yeah, got you, got you. And um, last thing too, just to reach back again, mm-hmm. just so everyone understands the, the diversity this man's talking about. Because you might be from a small town like we were. Uh, it would be it would be easier for you to name the ethnicities and cultures that we don't have in this area than it would be to name what you do have. That's true. There's Very so true. many different countries and so many people. Mm-hmm. And with your guys's ability to have to. Um, I guess adapt to those scenarios what advice would you have for any young man or woman that's either thinking about joining the force or has already joined the force and is going through training well i think once you've gone into an academy and you're going through the training you know more power to you listen to the, your instructors because they're going to give you the best information and it's going to be specific to the agencies you're working for so that's important for those people who are interested in getting into law enforcement you know if you're young if you're you know, between the ages of 15 and 20 a lot of police agencies have explorer programs explore that possibility and and do some work with them um, if you're older you take a criminal justice class yeah, you know, take a, find out what what's out there and what kind of classes can give you some background of information and hmm, like me what I want to do. It's okay to talk to some officers, you know. And more times than not, maybe they're having lunch or something like that. He said, "Officer, is it possible I could just ask you a couple of questions about law enforcement?" And most people are most of the officers will be pretty open to it, especially if you're talking about you know looking at it as a career path. So I think that's another option. And then, you know, you can call your local police agency and if, if they allow it, that some agencies will actually allow for ride-alongs or at the very least, you know, interview an officer. And so, you know, they're, police agencies want to help their communities, want to get to know their communities, and they're certainly going to encourage people who are looking at a career path. Because right now, um, numbers are down for people interested in a career in law enforcement. And that's that's across the country. You know, with the defund the police and all the other different things that that have occurred in the past couple of years, um, law enforcement's no longer a a uh, viable career path for a lot of people. Now, this kind of happened in the in the mid mid nineties, mid to late nineties, when Silicon Valley was created. People who we used to recruit to, they started going. You know, I'm pretty good with computers, and they started going towards jobs with Silicon Valley. 
you know, computer, computer industry, high tech and all that. So we lost a lot of good people during that era and our numbers went down from a recruitment standpoint. Now, you know, fast forward to today's date, the same thing is happening where people are no longer looking at law enforcement as a viable career alternative because, wow, people don't like us. Wow, look at how hard it is. Wow, you could be sued for this. Now, if you look at law enforcement now, they make good money. They have terrific health benefits and dental benefits and career retirement benefits. You know, when I retired, I had a six-figure retirement pre-divorce. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact is, is that I know I have a number of part, uh, co-workers who very comfortable retirement. And if they bought their home early enough, the house is paid for. And so they're getting their salary and we could get up to 90% of our highest salary. So if you were a six-digit income and it was over a certain amount, you were getting a six-digit retirement annually. So that's not something to sneeze at. That, that you know, you are going to be compensated pretty well in most police agencies. And a lot of them have signing bonuses now. Yep. I mean, like Department of Corrections. That's a tough job. I, I personally wouldn't like to do that kind of work, but the officers who work in Department of Corrections, what they like about it best is they know who the bad guys are, you know, and it's confined and there's, and so I can respect that, you know, what they have to do. I wouldn't want to have to go into that, 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 that particular career path because I find that dealing with nothing but, you know, criminals, you tend it sadly, it brings you to kind of down. And what I liked about the Ohio Patrol is that I met a diversity of people and I could go out to the communities and, and meet them and do presentations with them. And people would come up to me and thank me and, 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 and ask me questions that they normally wouldn't be comfortable asking because I'm in an area where they can accept it. It's acceptable to ask me questions. And, and you're also touching on, obviously, it's a different ballgame today with the defund the police, all the social issues going on. We don't really need to touch on any of that stuff. Everyone knows what's going on. Um, but we also spoke about, you know, officers just getting gunned down in their car or just pulling up for a routine traffic stop. What advice would you have for anyone, um, young man, woman, currently as a police officer or, or even an officer that is close to retirement? Like, you know, they only got a few years left to push it through. Well, we have a, an old saying that we do a lot of routine stops. But the reality is they're not routine. Every stop is going to have its own personality, if you will. Most of them are going to be low level, meaning that they're not going to be a physical threat. They're not going to be a threat to your life. But you have to prepare yourself for that percentage, that small percentage where it could go south. And whether young or old, you have to maintain that diligence and you have to maintain a tactical advantage when you're approaching a car, when you're approaching the house, whatever, you know, whatever the circumstance is, you have to maintain an elevated sense of awareness of what your surroundings are, potential, potential hotspots where a bad guy could come from. And even with all that, even if you do it all right, sadly, shit happens. And you're, you're the second half of my, my, the thing that they want to tell you that law enforcement trainers will tell you is don't give up do not lay down and die 
get up, fight back. If they punch you and they knock your teeth out, swallow your teeth, get back up and start swinging. Fight back. You will win. You have to have that winning mentality. You have to continue to go until the bad guy and the threat is eliminated. Fight to the death. Fight to the end. Because I don't want to die in some dirty freeway. I want us to prevail. I want to go home at the end of my shift. And that's how you have to kind of train it. And if you maintain that, you have a greater possibility of surviving. And that's the goal. Everybody's de- Everybody in law enforcement, when they go up, they start their shift, their goal is to go home after shift. And that's, that's that mindset that you have to create. You have to maintain that diligence. Most officers already know this. The people who want to go into that career, you have to remember that, yes, it's a job, it pays well now, and it, it and there's a lot of benefits that go with it, but you also have to remember, it's a dangerous job, and you have to make sure that you have the proper mindset going in, that you've got to protect yourself, you have to maintain awareness, and it's a lifestyle. When I go to restaurants with my family, I always kind of set myself up tactically, you know, so and, and people say, what do you mean tactically? You know, I'm going to be able to see the entrances and exits. I want to see where where people could potentially come from. And I want to see where the, I'm, I, it's a it's that situational awareness. Where could the potential bad stuff happen? Now, that's something that you do because you've been doing it for for your lifetime. You assume that you're in uniform and that people know you're a cop. And so you protect yourself because of that. And, you know, I'm 10 years, 12 years retired now from, from, from law enforcement, and I still exercise quite a bit of that. Uh, and I do the same thing <laughs> when, I, when I go out to eat. Yeah. I'm not sitting with my back towards the entrance. Yeah. No way. No way. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's, you know, that's some of that is street smarts. You know, you grow up the school of hard knocks. You grow up in a in a in a or work in an area or whatever. Go to school in an area where people aren't very nice. What do you got to do? You develop some some street sense of how do I protect myself and prevent it from happening. Or if it's going to happen, I put myself in position so I can react to it. And good for you. That's 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 good that you picked that up because not everybody. <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't exercise. I, I want to call it common sense, but it's also some situational awareness, recognizing when you walk into a certain place that there could be potential dangers, and just giving yourself that little extra "what if." And and there's another thing that we used to train on, and it was it was it was. Um, now, there are different names for it, but in essence, you try to prepare for what if this were to occur, what would I do? Like, let's say you go into a restaurant, you sit down and eat, you're looking at the entrance, you're looking at the cashiers, uh, where the, the, the register is. What if suddenly a couple of people broke in and they have weapons and they're pointing it at people? What would you do? What kind of alternatives would you have? And And so that's why... Sometimes it's, there's a no win, but you want to put yourself in a position where at least you take as much of the harm's way out of your way, you know. And so think about those things, and that's how, you know, I try to teach my kids when they were growing up. My wife, you know, my my ex-wife, she grew up with me as a law enforcement officer, and when I retired, I was still married to my first wife. She was very good about that. She understood why I did certain things because she knew it was to protect the family. My current wife, you know, she I wasn't a cop when we, we married, so she didn't have to live through that process. But I would still kind of mention, this is why I do what I do sometimes, so just be aware. And so she gets it, but my first wife really had to live through it. <laughs> yeah, you always want to make sure you have at least some time to uh, to react. Mm-hmm. This is better to have mm-hmm. some sort of reaction time than no reaction time. Um, 
Is there, is there anything you'd like to say to any other fellow retired law officer or anything like that? You know, one of the things that, that uh, I got approached, and it was actually something I prepared for, but I got approached by a retired uh, chief of the Highway Patrol, and he came up to me and said, hey, I hear you're retiring. He says, yes, sir. He says, you got anything planned? And at the time, I knew I had some, some ideas of what I was going to do. He says, I need you to be a docent. What? I want you to be a docent at the Railroad Museum because I, get, I find good people and I know you're, you're used to talking to the public and stuff. I want you to be a docent, you know, a volunteer docent where, where you're going to teach people about the train and train history in, in California. And so I did that for like three years. And it was a lot of fun. I, I was a docent at the Railroad Museum and showed people, you know, the different things about different trains and wherever I was stationed, got to know what that stuff was so I could explain to people the significance of certain things and the history of that part, that part of the train and things like that. And so have something ready to do when you retire. Plan ahead if you're going to retire so that you're not doing nothing because sadly law enforcement has a very high mortality rate for people who retire you know it's not unusual to have uh, someone pass away less than two years after retirement and a lot of times it's because they didn't have anything to do they got bored they you know and then old old memories haunted them or whatever and so you know or bad health and so you know have some kind of fitness plan have some ideas of what you're going to do. I had a master's degree in education, so I did end up going back and teaching. So I enjoyed that part. I love teaching. Unfortunately, my school shut down, so we couldn't teach anymore. And it's been harder to find another follow-up job. So that's why I'm doing security work. But, you know, the fact is that I like going out there and doing things in the community. I like doing things with other people. I love imparting information and sharing ed educational tidbits. And that makes it fun. And my wife knows that I like to do that. So, you know, she said, let's be docents together at the Railroad Museum. So that may be something we're going to do again. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Man, that's, that's, that's really cool. Was that, the, was that the museum here in Sacramento? Yes. Downtown? Yeah, Old Town, Sacramento. Okay. Okay. Very nice. Man, <laughs> that's pretty good. And I also, I also heard that the suicide rate is fairly high for law enforcement, right? And that's something they don't train for. And I believe that's why the training is a little bit longer now, too. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, actually, when I, was, when I was on the job, we did have a, the Highway Patrol specifically had a, a string of, of suicides. And I was part of a cadre of officers uh, who were trained. And then we went out to the field and we started training about recognizing the, the signs of someone who might be might be you know in that depressed state and one of the guys I worked with when I was in San Mateo County he was in fact uh, he was out of my senior class in my academy classes and great guy sharp guy sadly he committed suicide and a lot of people didn't recognize it and he was one of the reasons why I was inspired to get involved in the in this training and so we went out there as, as a cadre to teach this stuff on recognizing symptoms and signs of what 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 what's going on with people and to not just oh wow i think he's having problems well we better leave him alone quite the contrary talk to your friends talk to find out is there anything we can do for you are you okay let's get together let's have lunch or something get them so that you can make a difference in their life so that if they they can talk because sometimes just communicating and letting people know what's going on in their life and why are they depressed can help them and then we can help them seek help 
And that was part of what we did. And the, the rate went down, at least in our department, after we did this training throughout the state. That's good. I'm glad that that's brought to attention because mental health isn't something we focused on before. Um, gee, I'd hate to cut this interview short. Oh, it's all good, man. For a very long time. Let's do it again. <laughs> I'm willing to do it again, man. I enjoy doing these things if, if it's okay with you. Oh, you're welcome here anytime, brother. And I hope you start your own channel because there's a lot of retired uh, law enforcement officers that they uh, they get into the podcasting as well. I mean, I got many stories more to tell than just on this two hours. All right. So thank well, you for your time, Gaylord. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Call me again, man. We can talk about non-law enforcement stuff, too, because I'm one of these guys who's got lots of opinions. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll get into those next time, then, for sure. The opinion episode. All right. Thanks again, buddy. Well, later,